Hello, film lovers. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. We keep trucking through LA, but travel back through time when Casey Clark joins the show to talk about Ridley Scott's 1982 dystopian film noir sci-fi classic, Blade Runner. So, Joshua... Yes, Casey. What are, what are we talking about today? Let, I'm excited. We're talking about Blade Runner, Casey. This was your pick. The LA Sessions is back, continuing talking about movies that are, take place in and around the Los Angeles area and what we can learn from them as moviegoers. And damn, what a good pick. Yeah. Tell me why you picked this. Like, what's your relationship with Blade Runner? Okay, so I really enjoy what Blade Runner represents. You know, what what it's done for not just movies in general, but like the genre it's in. So so Blade Runner, you know, is early 80s film, one of the earliest cyberpunk films. And cyberpunk as a genre is one of my favorite things. It's interesting you say I hadn't actually thought about the cyberpunk genre, which is it's very clear as like it's science fiction and there's like the, the allegorical nature to it. And obviously hugely influenced by noir films, the 50s and 60s. But you are much more the cyberpunk expert than I am. So <laughs> why are you drawn to that genre? I think it's just interesting as a person. I'm very drawn to technology and I like to see where things might have gone wrong, where things might have gone right. And, and cyberpunk is a good viewpoint in terms of like what happens when you see a society where technology is kind of run amok. Cyberpunk tropes are usually like involve like high corporation control over society, usually advanced technology, body modification. And I, I just like the influences it has not only narratively, but like aesthetically, like there is a lot of good aesthetics that have come out of like the cyberpunk genre you see that especially in like like just some of the the different cosmetic and like garments that they have in the film like a lot of the mm-hmm. really weird costumes in the movie are just it's just really interesting and i was just looking at this thing that i had seen a couple of days before we actually i actually watched the movie i can't remember the name of the actual term but it has to do with the association of asian cultures specifically japanese culture with technology because back during the 70s and 80s a lot of the advanced computer technology was coming out of japan you know early video game systems like nintendo's from japan sony that bleed of asian influence over technology has definitely put itself into cyberpunk and there's a lot of asian influences in that genre and you see that a lot in blade runner because they're they're they you have the city speak which is like a patois of different asian and, and english languages you have the all the restaurants. He Deckard's freaking eating ramen on the street mm-hmm. when we open the film. You know, it's it's just it's all like a melting pot of dystopia. It's, it's I just love it so much. Yeah, I mean, there's there's clearly a lot of influences in this movie, and I'll, there's like you said, there's a lot of Japanese um, influence on the on just the society in general. And that's kind of one thing I do love about this movie is it, it feels like. It's based it's based in Los Angeles in 2019, but it feels completely otherworldly despite it taking place within, you know, our world. Like it yeah. it's so weird. Like they kind of balance it really well of like futuristic America, but also kind of like 
Dune or, you know, something like that. Yeah. You know, it's very, it's kind of this melting pot of like, of influences that make it feel, it, there's not really a whole lot of other movies that feel like Blade Runner, but there's a yeah. lot of movies that tried to do it. I mean, you could see like, like Total Recall is definitely influenced by Blade Runner. And it's like the, the overall look of it and the aesthetic. And I think, you know, Ridley Scott did such a great job of setting up this world for this first one. And, and Blade Runner even like, I mean, there's obviously that same semester that we watched that you saw Blade Runner first, yeah. the sequel came out yeah. and you wouldn't necessarily think that Blade Runner was a movie that you could continue on or a world that would continue on to have another section of a story. Yeah. But the thirty, the one of the, you know, one of the many 30 year sequels that happened within the yeah. few, past few years. It's mm-hmm. kind of crazy the they're they're doing instead of reboots they're actually doing sequels to movies that remain in the 80s and i i love uh, 2049 is amazing uh, maybe we'll do a future episode on that there's a lot to talk about with I, that i would but love to it's so easy to get sucked in mm-hmm. you know yeah. and like the the attention to detail and just the aesthetic alone like you wouldn't necessarily think like okay this clearly is a sci-fi movie but it's a noir movie that's based within science fiction yeah and i'm a big science fiction guy some of my favorite movies are are sci-fi i love like t2 and like ex machina but like mm-hmm. i love sci-fi movies that are very like where sci-fi really shines for me is where it's a story that is based in reality that kind of reflects us as human beings yeah. um, in modern day society through the future. And I mean, it's this movie came out in 1982, takes place in 2019, and 2019 was you know, just a yeah, little short what? Yeah, yeah, just out the door uh, for us. And what does this movie mirror for us you know, 2019, 2020 society, what did they get right? And what did they get wrong? Because I mean, clearly they, the technology is not the same. Yeah. Uh, we don't have flying hover cars. We don't have AI to that level. Yeah. But I mean, there's clearly a lot of moral quandaries that are brought up that definitely reflects nowadays. So what do you think stands out? Like, what do you think like you can look at now and be like, okay, this actually, this actually still feels fairly relevant. What I found so interesting about Blade Runner's technology is how it's a future vision of what would I think would have happened if the analog technology and the early digital technology from the 80s furthered itself without actually advancing uh-huh. like you know into new things. Like the the whole scene where he is sitting in his apartment and analyzing the Polaroid in that machine it's such an interesting viewpoint because it's still a Polaroid. It's still a physical photo and it's just like an early computer system. But what what he's doing is like it's almost saying, oh, these are Polaroids, but they're more advanced because he's pulling this much detail out of a single photo. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think it's kind of interesting, like how you have analog technology, but it's somehow advanced to a, its own you know, type of technology. Like analog technology is still used and um, still relied upon in the movie. And like also the whole thing about AI and, um, you know, how a a dangerous trek that can, that can lead you down and can actually possibly do, you know, more harm than good. And I mean, in this movie, they, they use AI for, they're seen as slaves. And, you know, there's a really good allegory about, you know, about slavery and about human practices such as that. Um, which still feel, you know, 
still feels very relevant as we continue down this path of new technology and like continuing to feel like we need to as advance as fast as humanly possible and when we don't actually think about the full-on consequences of our of our actions you know it's a sci-fi movie but it's much more a disturbing human story and character story than yeah. it is like a sci-fi action adventure a lot of the the sci-fi part like you know the whole off-world thing like we don't even see any of these other worlds that you know some of humanity has gone to it's all mm -hmm. in the background layered on top of the core which is this man trying to cope with his empathy towards somebody he's supposed to perceive as an enemy Mm -hmm. But in the end, it's something that he he kind of feels guilt over. And we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the end of the movie, because I, ha yeah. I have some I have some stuff to talk about with that. The whole yeah. tears and rain scene. But mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about it last night. So they have the all the artificial organic designing, you know, like mm -hmm. the 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 artificially created animals and people, you know, so. There's the show, the new newer show on Netflix called Altered Carbon. And there's a lot of similarities, not just in tone, because that is also a cyberpunk show. But like some of the organic technology that they talk about in the shows are very and this movie are kind of very similar. The powerful have become more than normal people. But in this case, it's the replicants who have, you know, as Tyrell's slogan goes, uh, more human than human. In, in that show, Altered Carbon, it's the people who are switching bodies, these new bodies they go into are, you know, much superior to a normal person's, just as the replicants kind of start to perceive themselves as and, and kind mm -hmm. of are. Because, you know, uh, Roy Batty and the other replicants uh, all have different functions and they all are made specifically for a certain task. So they have certain attributes that definitely put them above, you know, just Deckard. Right. You know, Roy Batty is seen as an extremely strong person. I mean, he puts his head through a wall in that yeah. final fight scene. So, yeah. you know, he's, he's definitely somewhat stronger. Yeah, I mean, the whole, like, I, I, what I love about this movie, too, is, like, on top of that, you know, the lines be, being a noir film, the, the, the lines between good and evil and what's right and what's wrong are very blurred. Yeah. They're very gray. Like, and that's kind of a, we'll talk about the noir genre. That's like, that's a staple of noir. You know, it's very, the way they film it in this movie, it's very dark. It's rainy. It's very like, you know, smog filled yeah. LA. And um, I mean, the main character is like, I mean, he's a blade runner, but he's like, he's basically, he's a detective. He's like, you yeah. know, he's just, he's only led by his own, his own findings and his, his own intuition. work. Um, yeah. His own intuition. And, the fact that, and we can answer this later. I definitely don't want to answer it now, but like, you know, the whole question surrounding the movie is Deckard a replicant. Um, and he's the one testing, you know, and finding tracking down replicants, yeah. you know, kind of makes it this question of who is kind of on the right side of society here. Like, is he doing the right thing? I mean, technically he is because he's, you know, he's a cop and he's supposed to do that, but he's doing it against his own people. And that the enemy actually has a really good reason for doing what they're doing yeah even though their methods are flawed roy batty's you know his end game is is honestly something that you can't really fault him for mm -hmm. you know he just wanted to you know live a life a full life and he's one of the best 
you know, he's one of he's one of the most famous movie villains like ever. Mm-hmm. And it, he's one that I always kind of forget about. But like I've seen this movie. This is it was my second time watching it last night. He, he like and this is part of how good Rooker Hauer is. He just pulls you in like he's very intimidating, mm-hmm. but you don't really find out like his methods beforehand. You kind of it's great that you have to kind of piece together why they're doing it. Yeah. I mean, this movie asks a lot on part of the audience to do the work for them, which is why I kind of think the audience reaction to it initially um, wasn't as strong as, as um, people might now. as it is now. Yeah. Um, you can also kind of attribute that to Ridley Scott removing the voiceover because he's mm-hmm. trying to trust his audience in understanding the motives behind the characters without, you know, getting it fed to them from Deckard's voiceover, which was critically panned because, right. You know, there, there's the, you know, the rumor that, Harrison Ford kind of flubbed the voiceover just so they wouldn't keep it, but they still ended up keeping it. But, you know, with Ridley Scott taking it out and, you know, keeping certain things in the movie that he wanted to, you kind of see a, a whole of what he's trying to do. And you he feeds you information through like snippets of conversation. And and uh, when Deckard's talking to the his police chief guy, you you learn a lot about what mm-hmm. the view worldview of two, a peop, two different people are. You know me. As a world building fan, like just someone who loves the world building within, you know, science yeah. fiction, fantasy films like this does a great job of showing and not telling. And right. I think mm-hmm. I think it's just a prime example of like trusting your audience with the, the material that's given to them and, and letting them understand the story for themselves and understand the message you want to portray and the, the people that are trying to portray it and kind of hopefully learning something from this this entire film. Yeah, I mean, Ridley Scott has, I mean, Blade Runner's become famous now because of how many different cuts there are of the movie. There's the initial theatrical cut, there's like the re-release, the international, the director's cut, and now the final cut. Yep. Um, and I first saw this movie, it was actually the summer before that semester, mm-hmm. between fall 2017, and I saw, I kind of wanted to see it, My I wanted my first viewing to be kind of like like, the initial viewing, so I watched the theatrical cut. Yeah. And I honestly still really loved it, but the voiceover is definitely not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and wh- this and last night was my first time watching the final cut, and without it, it actually enhanced the experience. Now, and a slight, you know, kind of benefit of the doubt for the voiceover, th- that's kind of a, a staple of the noir genre is that yeah, there is a lot of the voiceover. voiceover, yeah. Mm-hmm, the internal conflict. And uh-huh. I understand that, but, like, obviously they did it because they feared that no one would understand what's going on. And uh, they needed it for a certain exposition. But in watching the final cut, especially now, and maybe this is just because of like, you know, this 2020 mindset and, you know, having seen so many movies that have done like stuff that's similar, similar. to what Blade yeah. Runner, to what Blade Runner is doing. I mean, Blade Runner is a very modernist movie. It's not, you know, it's not very cause and effect led. The structure yeah. is very loose and it's it's influenced by the past, but it's definitely not trying to be like a fifties film noir. It's more trying to convey a a modernist viewpoint with, you know, the tone and aesthetic of that kind of film. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's just one movie and what we talk about this a little bit later at the end, but like it's one you have to come back to. I think it's fun to kind of come back and, and really think about um, with a different viewpoint. Oh, this actually works, especially after, you know, watching so many films that have tried to replicate this or like have done similar styles. It's like, oh, I actually see what there's a lot of really good visual storytelling in the movie without, you know, without the use of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it's one that you kind of have to continually go back to. And 
like a lot of people say, I hate Blade Runner and I didn't like it the first time. And um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of criticisms around this mm-hmm. movie. And it's because it's just, you know, it's especially for 82, it's not that conventional. Um, it's a very mod, it's a very modernist movie. Yeah. Let's get into Critical Breakdown. So to start off, let's talk about this movie, as we said before, set in Los Angeles, 2019. This is a very dark, dreary portrayal of LA. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's like a towering city. Um, The imagery all of like is all beautiful, but it's raining the entire time. There's like smog everywhere. It's a lot like you're in back alleyways and like the lights are so neon, but also so dreary. It's a very weird Home. And I don't. He's. Ne- I mean, he's never actually even in daylight in the entire film. No, it's constantly dark out. And like, so like, how does the location? Do you feel like uh, affect the tone of the overall movie? Like, I feel like I th- this movie, like, it, it works better because in LA because of how dark it is and the towering metropolis, and like, it just makes it feel like someplace that's not as recognizable as something like New York City or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it definitely evokes, you know all of those vibes. I think it's, it's kind of a representative LA. If LA was all the bad pieces of LA were turned up, you know, tenfold, Uh uh, you know, you have rampant pollution, you know, a lot of people scavenging for things just like the constant smog bringing in, you know, that, that constant there's things in the air kind of thing is a lot really represented through the, the cinematography Uh, I mean, all the set pieces and I mean, some of it is done by people smoking even, but all the cinematography is kind of planned out to have light from, you know, a window or like shining in from the outside, kind of refracting off something in the air and making these kind of really dynamic situations. You can only see, you know, in a film that where the lighting is this dark and dreary and you all this contrast on the people. And I think what it does is it kind of evokes you're, they're living in a world that at first Deckard perceives as very black and white. The contrasting of the colors, you have the dark darks and the bright neon, but in the end, it's still just this horrible dystopia. And he starts to, you know, pick up that, it's all one thing. It's all just a gray moral quandary that he needs to kind of work his way through. And I think the city is a good kind of playground for that idea. You have uh, it's, it's crowded. There's a lot of people. He's constantly, you know, questioning his decisions and how it might affect everyone around him. And I think with LA, you, you have, a representation, but more of a mutation of what we see today. So kind of going off what you were saying, I, I, th- I think it's interesting that um, they set this movie in L.A. And yeah, you were saying they turn up kind of the negative elements of it, the pollution, the kind of the, the overcrowding, dirty grime, overcrowded, yeah. the homelessness of it. Um, and it, they make this place like, I mean, L.A. is like, you know, one of the most like, it's such a desirable place to live. Like mm-hmm. people flock there for, you know, opportunity and like, yeah. and they make it such a place that you don't want to be in. Like, it's so like grimy and just gross. And you, like you said, the fact that there's, you know, all of this, like all the crime and the, 
the gray areas, the moral, the um, ambiguities of it. Yeah. Um, it just makes it a place that you don't want to live in, but you feel for, uh, you know, the situation in Harrison Ford plays uh, Deckard, who is just fantastic in this movie. And at that, you know, because there's a lot we don't know about him and he's such an interesting character and because, I mean, come on, it's fucking Harrison Ford. How could you not want to, you know, yeah. side with him? It's kind of fun to go on the ride, regardless of the of the grossness of it. You're hoping that maybe some good's going to come from this or uh, there's going to be like an interesting adventure to it to kind of help fight you through the setting that's kind of bogging you down. Yeah, you know what I mean? I get it. Let's talk about Harrison Ford in this movie. This feels like a, a bit of a different role for him. Uh, yeah, uh, more more cynical, less uh, adventure Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, just the fact that, like, there's so much we don't know about him. Like, I mean, we side with him, but because of, you know, the, the nature of the story and the adventure, quote-unquote adventure, that he goes on, you're not really sure where he, you know, where he stands as like a person. Is he a good guy? Is he a yeah. bad guy? I mean, like he's obviously the the hero of the, but like, you know, and that's kind of one of the staples of the noir genre is the reluctant hero and the, mm-hmm. the flawed hero. Yeah. Um, I mean, cause at the beginning when his, like he's, you know, he's retired and then he comes out, he comes out of retirement for this, this case of these six replicants who have who killed 23 people and escaped to come to LA and they want it up their um, lifespan, basically their lifespan. But I, I love his character in this because like I said, you're still trying to figure out what makes him tick. Like he's actually really smart in this movie and you can see like he is a trained detective and he is really trying to put the clues together. It's really cool to see him like use technology and follow the clues and use his intuition to get through regardless of whether he's breaking the rules or not. Yeah. I think, I think one of the the best scenes where you get to really see him like put his police background like to work is the scene where he goes to hunt down, um, the, the snake lady, I can't remember her character's name, but the, the one replicant who's become the, the snake dancer. And he, he goes right, yeah. in and he, he makes it sound like he's someone he's not. And he before he even gets to where she is, he's doing this track down from like a single scale. And then he, he takes it to that lady and she gives him the code. And then he goes to the, the bar and starts just asking questions. And it's just kind of interesting to see how he can become a bit of a chameleon. And, and yeah, that's that's a great, you know, that's, he had to, he has to think on his feet and he, and he uses deception to get the clear answers. And then that leads to like the great chase scene mm-hmm. through the LA streets. I really like the, the whole scene where she ends up just smashing through all these glass panels. And I, I like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely goofy in terms of like physicality, but I really, really, really like the way it's shot and the way all the different colors are bouncing through the glass frames and then when she hits them, like it, it just kind of stops. Like you see the neon mm-hmm. reflected in them and then everything just kind of like ends when she's finally on the ground. She breaks through like six glass panes. Yeah, still. yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of goofy because she just keeps going. But I, I think it, it was also a bit of a representation in terms of like that's another light leaving this this life. And I mean, it goes back to that line that Tyrell tells Roy Batty, you know, the Light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Yeah, and th- that's kind of like, you know, a, an overall theme of the movie is yeah. the, uh, like, of life and what, you know, what is valuable in a life and, you know, who, 
who's a valuable human being and who isn't or what is human what is it because i mean this movie plays with the turing test but we'll get to that in the next section yeah um because like i mean that's another good point like when he's tracking down like especially in that scene you can kind of feel like deckard is kind of impacted by the fact that he took out that replicant mm-hmm. um the the snake lady and he's he's kind of grappling with that and he's also you know grappling with the fact with like one of my favorite scenes when he goes to the Tyrell Corporation which is this beautiful like pyramid looking yeah. it's almost the, godlike like it's all right that that's like one of my favorite visuals from the film is when he flies uh-huh. to Tyrell that's all like a model like a scale model and a lot yeah. of it is just that shot and then layered on is the little flying car and stuff but I just really like Ridley Scott's use of like the models for the big cityscapes. But the Tyrell building is just really it's also really iconic. Like it's it's one of the most iconic things from that film is is that huge mm-hmm. pyramid and like and then Tyrell, his office looks like this, you know, almost like a Roman palace. And it just kind of shows that divide. There's a lot of Roman emperor uh imagery in the movie and like that kind of plays <coughs> with the the idea of power and you know that he is the one who created life and i mean it's lloyd the bartender from the shining so it's great to see him uh and you know he meets rachel who is like um who is his assistant and does the 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 test on on her yeah Yeah. and after like took her like a hundred questions or whatever for him to realize oh she's a replicant and this was one of my i guess questions about the movie itself that i was a little confused on so Replicants are now like outlawed so, in Los Angeles. They're outlawed on Earth. Uh-huh. So so what ha- so the the big scrawl in the beginning on the screen that kind of explains like the world that you're about to enter is you know, technology's advanced, the replicants are one of the most advanced, you know, robots. They're androids, so they're robots, but they're actually organic. And they're they're the Nexus Six. They're the most advanced model. And you learn that there was an uprising of the replicants, and they they were used off world as slave labor. And then there is mm-hmm. an uprising, and what happens is they end up being outlawed on Earth. And if any are found, you have Deckard, who's a Blade Runner. He's basically a cop to go quote unquote retire the replicants by killing them because they're not supposed to be on the planet. But the only reason they're there is to, you know, become more human. But in that Ty- the scene with Tyrell, he explains that they have a fail safe. So they only have a four year lifespan. And he learns that the reason they think one of the top reasons they think they're real is because the control that Tyrell's been putting over them is. And he finds out through Rachel and, you know, who she is, is that they have implanted memories Mm-hmm. And that was like one of the the moral gray areas that he starts to see is like if if these, you know, artificial beings are never aware that they aren't real, then what makes it so that they aren't allowed a, a full life? Like it's kind of it's 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 immoral, basically. Right. Yeah. I do love that part of the, the part, that idea of the, in the story. Um the idea of planting memories and like, you know, giving these non-human beings something that makes them human an actual consciousness. And, you know, there's that scene when Rachel goes back to, um, 
Deckard's apartment mm-hmm. and he's like, you know, you have a memory of like, you know, a spider outside of your window as a child. And like, you know, those, those aren't your memories. Those are Tyrell's nieces. Um, Tyrell's nieces. And the fact that she acts, you know, so she's so clearly she, hurt Yeah, she's by taken that. aback real bad. And I mean, he backed, he backtracks after he sees that he's like, it mm-hmm. was, a, it was a cruel joke. You're, you're real. And he, he realizes that that that's one of the first things he begins to understand how cruel it is, you know, to give them a false identity, a false past and them learning yeah. that it's not even real and that they only have this short time to live. And and then it, it he kind of like understands, oh, maybe what I'm doing isn't necessarily the right thing. Yeah. And I think one of my issues with the movie per se and it's not necessarily the biggest issue in the world but because like i said this movie is very like i mean i'm using the term modernist a lot because we just i just talked about it a lot with that in my in my film theory course that i'm taking right now but uh the modernist movie is like you know a, a film that doesn't use traditional storytelling elements to um so like there's obviously moral characters in this there's not a happy ending there well depending on the cut you watch there's not a happy ending <laughs> right but like there's clear gray area the whole story structure is not directly three act it's not like there's like the inciting incident and then the <coughs> trials and tribulations of the characters yeah it's, it's more, all kind of it's a little bit it's just it's definitely different yeah uh but their relationship is a little weird for me yeah, no, uh, that is actually one of the cons that I put down in the store in in my notes is that I, I understand why the romance is there and I understand how it affects the plot and how it furthers Deckard's takeaway from the the whole moral morals of the situation. But it does it does happen very fast and feels a bit forced. It fe- it felt like mm-hmm. there needed to be more time in that relationship like it it kind of jumps from zero to a hundred the second time she's at his apartment there's that a little cringy of a, a of a makeout scene at the door oh god which that that's like the one thing that kind of was like ah. but also i understand what he's getting at is she's mm-hmm. running away from the her emotions her problems um and he's trying to like you know show her it's okay to be human but it's feels so forced that it's a bit eh. my my problem with it is definitely not the idea of it like this is a movie where actually like this romantic subplot in the story works like you can add it in there and it would fit fine that also that is a staple of the noir genre is uh right. you have you know the the flawed protagonist and then you have uh sexual motivations there's there's always mm-hmm. a damsel in like a noir detective film <clears throat> And and so that's usually you know a, a main integral part of it. So I, I get why it's there, and and it definitely furthers the plot, especially in terms of like character development. But it does it's it's a bit forced, I feel. And and it, it's like a it's and it, it's almost like an antagonizing force against the actual story itself. Like it's something that's going against um, the you know finding the replicate, like because it's forcing us further. He's developing a relationship for replicants, the people that he is supposed to be hunting down. And like, that's a cool idea. Like I like that. The the problem is, is I don't really believe the chemistry or actual um, sexual tension between 
Rachel and Deckard, like between yeah. the two actors. I, I, I just honestly don't believe it. Yeah. And also, no one knows how to kiss in this movie. <laughs> Everyone's doing it like they're munching on an apple. Like, it's just like, it's so aggressive. Yeah, it is. And it is very like, yeah, it's it, it makes me cringe. I honestly, what I, I think it would have, the film would have benefited from one more scene. And that scene would be him going back to the Tyrell Corporation and talking to Rachel more like having just another dialogue scene where, but them as people uh, taken away from like everything else. Like he's trying to ask more questions about, you know, the investigation and she's just like Deckard, let's just talk. And that mm-hmm. would further it more. And I think that just adding something like that would definitely help with developing that as like an actual believable relationship. But in the movie, it feels sort of rushed and forced and, you know. Yeah, and they didn't take enough time to really develop Rachel as more of an asset to the story other than that. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the only other thing really she does is she kills Leon, the one replicant. Um, And I I wish she was more predominant in the story. And that's kind of one thing that um, the the balancing of the stories and of this, you know, the of the side plots or the subplots in this movie isn't really equal. So like and. One of my biggest praises of the movie um, is uh, Rudger Hauer as Roy Batty, who is just fantastic in this movie and is a really menacing villain. But he kind of disappears in the second act. Yeah. So he shows up and goes to talk to um, the uh, the guy who the, makes, makes the, the eyes. eyes. Which, okay, uh, pause real quick on this scene. I love this scene purely for all the show and no tell about what makes this world like function he like he's in an uh-huh. ice box why is he in his ice box oh to make sure the eyes like stay viable uh and then yeah. he like you know <laughs> it's just and then there's the whole bit where the dude's just pulling the eyes out of the vat and sticking them on the guy while he's talking to roy batty oh, and it's just so like uncomfortable and oh, i love i love i just uh-huh. love that scene it's really good I- yeah, and like I love one of the things that I love about that is that they use a lot of things. A lot of the, that these replicants do is that they use human um, human attributes against humans. So like um, the fact that they pull off all of the like his coat mm-hmm. because he needs that to survive in the pure cold, yeah. and he, it's actually killing him. And the fact that they can you know survive in in the cold and using um, deception later on, like how um, Daryl Hannah's uh, character brings in uh oh jay like lures yeah, jay sebastian yeah. she, she in like, as like with compassion compassion yeah. like using humanistic qualities against humans to lure them in and get what they yeah. want is really smart and, like really yeah, well done it's, it, it definitely shows how um resourceful like the the replicants are and like how they can use the human condition to their advantage but also like ah uh, you fi- that's like the one character that really like just makes me sad is JF Sebastian. Cause he's just like a lonely dude and he just gets yeah. screwed. They, he does. He's it's said that he gets killed off screen, right? I, f- I figured, yeah, I'm pretty sure I think the, the police chief said there was a body and they have identified it as him. So I'm pretty sure he was mm-hmm. killed, but it's just, it just sucks. Like, yeah, uh. <laughs> he was 25. Yeah, he was 25. He looked 50. Yeah. Well, I mean, they explain that though. He has like a condition, but 
Right. Yeah. But uh, mm-hmm. but it's just like he's such a like an interesting character purely for you know how lonely he is and how you know kind of childlike he is, and it, it is kind of mm-hmm. a good not necessarily foil but like contrast to what Roy Batty represents. It's it's if anything, JF Sebastian is like the most human out of everybody just because he you know he doesn't have the same you know amount of compassion in his life and this is kind of another thing that makes the movie uh, a little bit more modernist than like a classical hollywood movies you don't really understand the um the motivations behind roy batty and them fully until much later yeah like, so like i had actually forgotten about the the slave labor part of it yeah when roy batty showed up and i was like okay so they want to increase their lifespan okay i get that but that's not really the main motivation. They do this because of like they're they're freeing themselves from yeah from slavery, and mm-hmm. you know that adds a whole other layer to the movie that again makes it more disturbing. And I like that. Like I love that scene when they go and like I said, that's one of my problems with the movie is that like they show up for that scene in the eye in the eye place, and then they're gone for like maybe forty minutes, and then they come back when they go to talk to, to Tyrell. Uh, to Tyrell and that scene with Tyrell though is fucking fantastic. Yeah. Um, because there's such great tension and really good dialogue about like, you know, you know, he says the, the line about the candle, but then, um, you know, he's like, uh, you can't be fixed. Yeah. You can't be fixed. And I think someone says like, Oh, it's painful to live in fear. And like I was, and that's kind of like one of the big themes of this movie or like big overall things about this movie. It's just like, constantly living in this world of deception and like perception of other people. Like it's just so terrifying. And like, he's kind of like a great example of that. And you know, he even says later when he's fighting Deckard, he's like quite an experience to live in fear. That's what it's like to be a slave. And that actually is like a really compassionate line. And I was like, Oh my God, that actually like, I understand what you're saying. And like, that is horrible. Um, and then he like fucking crushes Tyrell's head. Yeah. And it's like, Oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, you also understand why he's so enraged is because he's realizing that everything he's done up to this point is futile because he can't be fixed. And, mm-hmm. it, and it, and it's kind of just like a, ter- like, it's just a, a crushing realization, literally crushing. Um, yeah. but I uh, I wrote down when he met Tyrell, that is also Tyrell says, oh, come to meet your maker. It's it's kind of like it's it's like, you know, basically him man meeting God. You know, he met the man that created Mm -hmm. him and you, you kind of like understand that. Oh, there, there's things that are going on that's much bigger than just Deckard, and it's only touched upon, but you can tell that it's affecting everyone around him. Um, and I also wrote down what quantifies experience. So you have, you know, the implanted memories, but then you also have like the crazy things um, that he's seen. Like he talks about in the Tears and Rain speech before he actually says it. He's like. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And he names off a bunch of things. And he's like, but when I die, those memories will be gone. 
like tears and rain. Can we, can we talk about this scene? Let's do the whole ending because I have a lot of thoughts on the the final sequence because it's abs- it's it's out of control. It's yeah. insane of uh, what happens I, in that. I have some cons before we get to the the Roy Batty speech anyway. If you want if you want to do do your cons, okay. do your cons. Uh Daryl Hannah's character, I don't like her. I just I hate Daryl Hannah's character. I don't know why, <laughs> but she's she, she's just extremely annoying. Um, but, but aside, but aside from like her character, okay, I understand what she is, what her character means. Like, like she's, you know, exploiting, um, JF Sebastian and everything, but there during the fight scene, it's clear when she's doing all the flips and stuff, it's clearly a body double of a dude with a wig on (laughs) and and it's i always laugh when i see it because it's like jesus christ it's so weird and (laughs) yeah i mean that's like i mean it's like when we did footloose we talked about like how kevin bacon's got like five stunt doubles for like the 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 warehouse scene alone but like (laughs) it so i i go back and forth about her character my thing with her character is that like I like what she is doing in the movie. Yeah, like, no, I, 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 think, I like, like, I think it's interesting and it's definitely a moral mm-hmm. like quandary. And I, I like, cause she's like, actually she's really fucking strong. She can, you know, beat the shit out of people and like is good at deception. Like she's really good at playing people to get what she wants. Um, like she lures Sebastian in and then, uh, you know, kind of uses, like I said, she uses compassion and she's really good at that. And I like that about her. Um, and that whole thing where she's pretending to be a toy and then pops out at Deckard and like kind of like, you know, knocks the fuck out <laughs> yeah. of him. Like, that's cool. I just don't think Daryl Hannah's a, gr- a good no, actress. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I don't think I she's think very good in the movie. it would have been better with someone who, tone, honestly, toning it down a bit, like the, the, the you know, the more... I don't I don't know the word just the more really like harsh aspects of it if they if they toned it down and leveled out her personality and made it more like you could really see what she was doing like you can but like having somebody who could really blend the two aspects of the personality I think would have been better uh-huh yeah, no, that's totally fair. Um, and she doesn't. Uh, yeah, at some points, just feels like she's kind of along for the ride. Um, I wish there was a little bit more yeah. given to her character. Um, I think you could say that about like you know. I think the the female characters in this movie could have been given like they're clear role players in the story, but they could have definitely been given more yeah. um, and been more predominant, mm-hmm. especially Rachel and uh, Daryl Hannah's character. Yeah. But. Um, but the action in that scene and just the kind of like it's actually kind of disturbing like after he after he kills Daryl Hannah's character and he's running around and then Roy Batty's like you see him running through like there's big wide shots of the of the room that's completely empty and there's light just coming in from the windows and it's yeah. dark and he's just running like that's actually creepy and then his like his head pops out and he breaks uh, Harrison Ford's two fingers like through yeah. the wall and it's like and he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna come for, I'm gonna disturbing. give you a head start I'm gonna <laughs> and then I'm gonna come mm-hmm. after you and it, he, he yeah. kind of plays toys with him also the what what was the reason for putting the nail through his hand like I understand the symbolism but it he just does it was he trying to up his yeah, adrenaline yeah, that was one thing I wasn't a hundred percent sure on either. Like, cause I mean, yeah, the symbol of this is like, you know, he's, you know, feeling pain and actually kind of 
yeah, just like having some sort of feeling. Well, I, like, I took it a step further. I was taking it like the Christian route and like being like, oh, oh yeah, it's uh-huh. like, you know, Jesus kind of thing. Like he's like, like I said, him meeting Tyrell is like man meeting God. And he is the guy that has to die in order for mm-hmm. things to change. In order for right, Deckard yeah. to see the light, Roy dies. And I think that uh-huh. him putting the nail through his hand is kind of symbolizing that he's the martyr here. He ends up becoming uh-huh. the martyr to try and um, make Deckard understand that what he's doing is wrong. No, that's yeah, no, that's really good because I mean, we talked about it. Obviously, the there's a lot of omnipotent imagery going on. You know, yeah. who is the um, uh, who is the real like who's the real God, the creator, the created. Um, yeah. Like that's like the whole big question. And and that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Cause I mean like, you know, he's really the, the quote unquote, like the apex predator yeah. in this, in this movie. And it, and that, you know, that makes sense. And then, uh, they, then we get to, you know, he's on the roof and, uh, he gives the, the speech. The one thing that I really don't like about this scene and, and part of it has to do with, the, the, before I saw this movie in our film analysis class, Jason Detrani was talking about how when they watched this movie, uh, it's with the bird, the dove or yeah. whatever. Um, they were, he was saying that like when they watched it, he was talking about how, you know, when he lets the dove go, it's a symbol of like, you know, giving his freedom up and like all this. And all the students were apparently just like, but how did he get the bird up there? Like, did he like, you know, put it in his pocket? Like, how did he carry it the whole time? And like, I think all he this. just and, pretty sure he just grabs it off the roof. That's what I thought too. And like that, that's not my problem with that. Yeah. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> my problem with it is it's too heavy handed. It's like, it's, I, I yeah. don't really think it's needed. Yeah. The, there's already a bunch of, I think the, the, the symbolism definitely kind of like becomes a bit of a issue. There is a lot of it. Like the, the, uh, the owl, like everything with the owl in Tyrell's office and like, you know, what, what that represents in terms of like his intellect and, the artificiality of it, but also like the reason it's there is kind of <clears throat> showing his superiority, you know, creating something mm-hmm. that's beautiful. And I don't know. It's just like the symbolism definitely can bog down some of the some of the plot. But I mean that that scene is just so beautifully written. Oh my god. Is yeah. it like the, the, that whole the whole speech and the yeah, just the fact that he just dies right there, and then, you know, he just lost the time. Like Decker didn't even beat him. Yeah, like the te- he just, Decker didn't even technically he won like by default. Yeah, you know, he, and I mean also um, the the line "time to die" is said twice in the movie. First, when Deckard is kidnapped or captured by the other replicant, the other male replicant, uh, whatever his name was, um, and he's like, "Wake up, time to die." Even though he, he didn't, uh-huh. you know, he wasn't asleep. But that's, I think what it is, is, you know, he's saying, wake up, like, look at what you're doing kind of right, thing. Yeah. And then you, you get to Roy Batty who says time to die. And he, he knows it's, you know, at the end of everything that he is. And he, mm-hmm. he finally lets go. There's something I noticed that I didn't notice the, f- the other few times I've actually seen this scene is... Deckard is crying after Roy dies. But is he really? Yeah. But you can't tell because it's rain like it it doesn't mm-hmm. end up mattering because it's raining. 
and that's tears and rain. Yeah, tears and rain. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> but but what, what I think it means is like even Deckard's guilt is overshadowed by the society and the the system that he's in is he doesn't even have Mm -hmm. time to mourn just the loss of a life because he has to go back to being, you know, this upstanding police officer and completing this job. And and then you have the, um, the, the other cop, the, the guy from Battlestar Galactica who, Mm -hmm. who makes all the origami and stuff. And he's like, it's too bad. You know, after, after everything's over, he's like, it's too bad. She won't live. Uh, yeah. And then he rushes back to his apartment and he, he goes to find Rachel. Mm-hmm. And that's like a good point. Like um, the the one thing about the the tears and rain thing is, yeah, I mean, like I, I love that he that that's the moment he realizes, OK, this is actually really fucked up. Then he goes back and gets out with and leaves with Rachel with the little origami um, unicorn unicorn, which is like a famous, famous prop now. Yeah. Uh, and I guess in a way, if you think about it, like the, the happy ending of it is that yes, he's going to, he's escaping with Rachel and we don't know where they're going, but hopefully that they'll be together and like can get out of this fucked up system. Uh, but the, the disturbing part for me that made me think like, okay, I don't know if this is such a happy ending is that like, I feel like that system is still going to be in place. And the fact that we know with 2049 replicants are still, it's, it's still a thing being pumped. And it's, it's still a thing. And it's still like, actually like, and that's what makes, you know, Batty such a tragic character with, with, with that end, because like he's the perfect representation of that as someone who escaped from that system. But was still was never actually able was never actually going to be able to achieve what he what he wanted to yeah like it was clear that he was kind of destined for that which is again it's it's tragic and i love a good tragic ending it's Um, it's very good also i mean and the whole the whole thing with the the memories then becomes the main plot point in 2049 which is why i I mm -hmm. like that subplot leading into that so much since we're since we talk about the unicorn, should we get into what that represents? What is Deckard a replicant? Yeah, let's get into. Okay, so let's go to let's go to analyze this. So let's let's just let's just go right in. Is Deckard a replicant? Uh, do you do you want to answer first? Or do you want me to? Because I I I'm ready. I mean I yes he's it's. He is a he is a replicant. He, he's such. He's there's no there's no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Of course he is. Like uh, how like if he isn't th- like that is such a demerit on this movie. Yeah. Like he has to be. But a major plus to this movie is that they never clearly answer it. They never explicitly say in this and 2049. Yeah. The mystery still kind of is through and through. Yeah. Um. But and in the final cut with the fact that they add in that vision of the unicorn and with the little and the origami thing at the end and also like i saw a video that talked about this but the fact that you can see like in replicants their pupils like glow like a certain color there's the uh there's the scene the second time rachel's apartment he moves behind her when he moves from the sink and his his eyes Mm -hmm. do it real quick it's like probably like 10 frames of that whole bit where his eyes glow and i mean you could think, oh, maybe it was because he looked into the same area of the camera where Rachel was, and that's why. But also, it's like that's the symbolism. That's 
oh, mm-hmm. he is a replicant. Like, it's it's true. Um, also, I looked up how they did that because that's all practical. So, mm-hmm. so what they do is you have the camera and then you have a two-way mirror in front of the camera. And then at a 45-degree angle from the two-way mirror, you have a light source that's blocked off from, like, the actual, like, actors. But it's facing the camera. So when you look at the camera for the shot, the light is reflecting in your eye line. And that's what's reflecting off your eye. So it's that's so yeah, cool. I, I I was looking up how to do it, and it's like extremely easy. I'm like, ooh, I wanna I wanna mess with that now. It's really cool. But I just <laughs> I just like how they use that as like the symbolism for what like replicants being so artificial is like you see like the 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 back glow in their eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. That's like you know the truth is in the eyes, and like you know there's that saying the eyes are the window to the soul, soul, and like they tell you everything you need to know, and then that's kind of the whole test. It's always through their eyes. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Deckard has to be a replicate because I mean it just makes the story feel more complete. So like, and just it makes it just feel so much more gray. Yeah. And adds to the idea like is what he's doing right? You know how does he feel about it? And that adds like later when he sees when he just sees Batty's time just run out. Yeah. And the fact that he um, is like almost destined for that or is destined for that because, you know, he's probably going to run out too at like soon. And that makes his motivation for running off with Rachel and leaving everything so much more clear and interesting mm-hmm. than if it was just like, oh, this girl's hot. Like, uh, yeah. let's go live together. Yeah. You know, like it's it just it makes it so much more meaningful and fit in with the theme and to kind of go back to the tears and rain scene, my thought of that was, was really interesting, which makes it even more tragic was that because at first I was like, OK, so what is what exactly is he saying there? So, you know, like I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And like all of these experiences that he's had of seeing, you know, like, you know, airships on fire off the shoulders of Orion, yeah. like beautiful line. Um that is kind of what makes him those experiences just on a humanistic level. It makes him human. Yeah. They, these memories and these experiences, they make him so unique. It's about, you know, subjectivity and the fact that this, he just dies because of a time clock that was inevitably going to run out. Mm-hmm. And all of that, that he has experienced all, everything that makes him a person is just forgotten and gone. Yeah. And, and that that's, what's so tragic is, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you'll, Nobody will ever, you know, have the same perspective. It's all about Mm -hmm. perspective. Even though he's not a human being, and we know that, does that invalidate him as a human because of, like, you know, he had similar experiences. He worked as a human being. Like, does that invalidate it? And, like, you know, that's that's like the big theme and, you know, takeaway of this movie is kind of the moral ambiguities and gray areas of what it is to be, be human. a human being. The problems with artificial intelligence and the whole thing with the Turing test. And that's good. I mean, this movie, like that aspect of it mirrors like ex machina. Very much so. Does it matter if like it's, if it seems human and, you know, looks human and sounds human, then it must be, must be human. But we know that, you know, obviously that's not the case. And again, that adds to if Deckard's a human being or is a human being or a replicant mm-hmm. and we can't fully even tell and it's not explicitly said to us and we can still feel for him because he's the hero of the story. Does it matter? Yeah. And I mean, I don't have a clear answer, but like I just I love that about this movie that it, it is really engaging in that way because it's so philosophical and psychological. 
Yeah. I love that it's definitely, you know, it's continued, expanded upon, and also brings out a whole slew of other things when you get to 2049. I, I like mm-hmm. what they did. Can't you just, it's such a good, just interesting series. And I, I, I would love to see another interpretation of this film. It's cool that they can expand on this story, but make it still feel contained. Yeah. Um, and the themes continue to run through it same way. Like 2049 is much more different in that it's, it's a little bit more clear in structure of the story. Like it's, you can tell it's like, okay, this is the first act. This is the second act. Mm -hmm. And this is like the midpoint, but there's so much added to it about with Ryan Gosling's character, you know, and his interactions with, with Decker. And I mean, we could go on and on about 2049. I'm going to save that because I would love to do a 2049 episode at some point. Um, Especially the, and I mean, can't you can't beat the the visuals that that movie is just oh, nah. beautiful and i mean you can definitely see the, oh, the influences that movie took from this one because some of the, the yeah. just the cinematography in this film and the use of like lighting to kind of evoke this like mysterious mystique of these places he's in um definitely like shines through i mean mm-hmm. I'll, i think my favorite scene in terms of cinematography is the um is the the Voight Kampf test with Rachel where she's smoking and it's oh, just yeah. like the light from outside kind of drifting in but through all that mm-hmm. like smoke in the air and it's just it's just interesting. So before we move on to human connection, let's just like sum up real quick like what do you think is the mess what are we supposed to learn from this movie? The message, the takeaway. I I mean, I always thought that like the the I mean the main thing is like the allegory for AI and how that's dangerous and you know how it can what it can lead to but you know, it also deals a lot with what we what we deem as valuable in terms of an experience and as a human as a person um because i mean like we like we've said it countless times already that you know this movie deals with like the, our villains are rooted in slave trade and the gray areas kind of make everything about this story more human and i like that so like the grays are essential to making it uh you know feel personal yeah and I mean, Ridley Scott has said that this is like he feels that this is his most personal movie. Yeah, I can I can definitely believe that would be the case for him. For me, the the message and takeaway is that our memories and our experiences are what define us, but also what make us unique and make us human. You know, and it and it's definitely like played with like what if it's someone else's memory, but even if it was someone else's, it still feels like it's mine and that memory will influence the way I think. Yeah, I mean, like really the thing about it is like memories in this movie are the most valuable um, currency, it seems like yeah. almost because, you know, they're kind of the added thing that makes the Nexus 6 the next big yeah, you know, and, leap because. But it's also it's also their downfall. Because yeah. giving them a past, making them think they're real, just kind of makes them want to actually live their lives as people and not as, mm-hmm. you know, a slave. And I love that, like, you know, it's it asks the questions, who has the power to do that? Like, who who's to say what is valuable or who's to say that this doesn't make someone human or who has the power to even call something here or like, you know, to create these beings. And, you know, everyone in this movie is so flawed, but it makes them, you know, in this whole futuristic world, it makes them much more 
attachable and relatable. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's why it's a it's a classic, you know, and yeah. it there's a good like there's a lot to take away from it. So let's move on to uh, let's finish it off with a human connection. Because we talked a lot about like, you know, the, the critical reception and how Ridley Scott kept going back to it and changing it. Um, and, you know, this is not a movie that, you know, everyone's going to love. I can understand why someone necessarily wouldn't like it as much. Uh, it's very different. It's very ballsy for the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I I love that, like, you know, and we talked about it earlier that, like, you know, this is a good L.A. movie because it does like literally the whole location sets the tone for the movie in being this place that you're kind of trapped in. And it's just this dreary place and it's gross that you, and it's good. It's like you said, it's great world building because of the morals of the place. They fit the location and the, the imagery of, you know, the towering buildings with the huge screens of, um, you know, like advertisements, but then there's the, uh, the Tyrell building is just this, you know, this Roman structure. And I, I, I love that it's very clear. There's a divide in society and there's, um, you know, this is not, <laughs> this, this is very clearly a dystopian. Well, I was going to say, not to mention that there is those, the blimp in the beginning, there's that blimp advertising the off world, you know, experience. And I think that's supposed to be like shouting at Deckard. Oh, there is, greener pastures and it's trying to show that Mm -hmm. he is also stuck on earth you know doing doing this thing and it asks a lot like the this area because of the because of just everything asks a lot of of inhabitants to fight to survive like every like apartment building is just like falling apart and it's always raining and it's just gross and you just (laughs) like it's such a fight for survival but the big thing that I wanted to say is like just this is a movie is like is a really good example of how important it is. I feel to to revisit work and not just on the point of the audience goers, but also the filmmaker. So like Ridley Scott took so much yep. time and effort to continually come back to this movie over the course of thirty years, and finally got it right. And I think this final cut is just it's like it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It's just like and and despite all its flaws, it's still like a riveting story and a great. Um, you know, philosophical movie, but I feel like it's important that as audience members that we, and we kind of said the same thing with uh, in the under the silver lake episode, that it's important to not just take one viewing as it is. I it's, it's essential to come back with a fresh mindset. And um, especially with, with, you know, you're with Blade Runner with all these cuts that come out. You're kind of doing that with Ridley Scott, you know, exactly. He and sees it this way at one point. I was going to say, I think what with him doing this, I think it was more about, uh, with, with the other cuts, you, you can see where he wanted to trust, you know, the individual and the audience to kind of see what he wanted to tell them. But with the, with the studio, you know, having input, the the original theatrical release really didn't get across what he was trying to say. But like later on, he he starts to be able to show what he what he wanted to tell the world and and kind of trust us in interpreting his you know his masterpiece that is Blade Runner. I also think that it's uh, it's it's important to note this movie was way ahead of its time. Yeah, um, and that. And I think another testament to that is the fact that 
the sequel 2049 came out in at the right at the right time 2017 it was it was the right time when we knew okay we were ready we or we were the right audience and that we liked the original blade runner we could actually see other movies before blade runner or after blade runner technically that had that were doing what blade runner was trying to do in terms of its structure and uh-huh. themes and then we realized we go back and we're like oh wait there's actually something like i've seen stuff like this before and just more modern and it actually um, but it was, this was it was it was way ahead of its time, yep. and it garnered a sequel that, uh, in my opinion, is better than the original. Oh, I because of what it de- definitely because it pushed it pushed the themes and the ideas even further, and it's good to understand some movies aren't going to get the reception or the actual status that they may deserve i mean who's who's to say that but like until much later you know sometimes with movies yeah. it like you got to be patient and it needs to, you need to take time with it and this is a I, this is just a you know a great example of exactly that. i mean that's why you have so many you know uh movies this time like nowadays that have cult followings is because when they first came out you know they probably didn't do well but you you have an audience for everything and you have a lot of people who will understand what movies these movies will try to convey and I mean, eventually you have an audience big enough that garners a 30 year sequel, which I agree with you is, I think is even, you know, surpasses the original, not only in like theme, but in just like all aspects of it. And I, it is a newer movie, but it, it definitely expands upon what the first one tried to do. And is it is not only a feast for the mind, but a feast for the eyes. So to round this episode out, we got to answer the question, why do we love this movie and how does it add to our love of film? We've obviously talked so much about it, mm-hmm. um, just gone into great detail. Um, the thing that I really love and take away from this movie is I'm a big sci-fi fan. Like I said before, I love the allegorical nature of this movie and that it's very, um, you know, it, it's kind of a warning about, you know, our powers as human beings um, and just as people in society of what of the power that we hold over other people in terms of social interactions, but also in terms of capability of technology, like we talked about with mm-hmm. the Tyrell Corporation. But I love the philosophical element I and the fact that it blends the genres together with noir and sci-fi. But the fact that there's it's very engaging. It talks a lot like it asks a lot of philosophical questions that it doesn't have the answer to. I mean, no one has the answer to them, but they're it's constantly making you think and the questions that are posed in this movie that we talked about can be applied in today's society you know we have such a power struggle in our society and like talking and social interactions they've changed so much since 82 but you know it's still it's still uh relevant the fact that we can talk about you know who's to say something isn't you know valuable or who's to say like something like that is uh, not what makes a person or like that's a real struggle that we kind of talk about daily. Yeah. Um, and I love that. I love those questions. I love when a film can pose that, but also be upfront and say, the audience is going to have to participate. You're going to have to be active in it. And we don't have an answer and you might not either, but the fact that you're thinking about it and continually trying to find an answer and figure it out in your life um, is, is a testament to the movie and the storyteller. Yeah. Uh, I I can definitely I can definitely agree with all the points you pose there. Now I think I uh, I think I'm gonna be a bit different though in why I love this movie. I definitely agree with what you're saying 
And I do like those aspects about the movie, and I think they are very important. The reason I love this movie is because it is a pillar to all the things that came after it. It is, you know, it is cyberpunk. It is new sci-fi. It shows what movies can be with a rich um, background and culture built into them and, and how that can, you know, garner um, an audience. Also, Blade Runner is the first to bring about, like, some of the main aesthetics we see in like certain sci-fi movies nowadays. And, it, and it's just very, it's, it's a critical tenet within uh, modern science fiction, um, cu- just culture in general. And I, I think that's, that's why I like this film. Not to mention, I wanted to get into this earlier, but I couldn't really find a point. The score is by, is by a, per- a person named Vangelis. He's one of uh, the early uh, electronic um kind of like based musical artists from the 80s and i i just love the way he combines synths in this film to evoke what jazz was to like older noir films because there's like points in the movie where he's playing a synth as if it were a saxophone and and it's just yeah i just love how it, it just condenses that feeling while also making it something brand new. And I just, I mm-hmm. really enjoy the score of this film. And I think it definitely helps draw you into the uh, story itself. And it, it is a great blend. It like showcases themes of scores from both genres, like the synth and sci-fi, but also the kind of, you know, moody blues saxophone of noir, you know, and it's, it's very minimalist too. Yeah. Like it's not big and over bloated um, in its music, but it's really, um, yeah, it is condensed and it's beautiful. It is some beautiful fucking music. Yeah. Man. And I, I just, that's, that's why I like this movie so much is just what, what it offered to the world and what was built upon it. I think it's a critical foundation of like a lot of the concepts that I hold dear. And I, I just, I think it's, it's, it's important in that way. And it's also important in the message it has to send, you know, the people watching it. Thanks for coming back on the show, man. No problem. This was, this was very fun. That does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies, the LA Sessions. Really great to have Casey back on the show for that great discussion. This podcast was produced by Sullivan Harris, who also did all the artwork for this season and this miniseries. If you want more updates from us, please go follow our social media on Facebook and Twitter, Frankly I Love Movies on Facebook, and at Frankly Podcast on Twitter. And you can follow me on Instagram at joshveljosh21 for more fun updates on what's going on in my life. And tune in in two weeks for the next episode of the LA Sessions with Austin Burchard as we talk about the driving, action-packed, Nicolas Cage thrill ride gone in 60 seconds. Ooh, it's going to be a good one. And until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Movies.